I'd like to call the meeting to order. This we are in open session. If can we have a roll call? Trustee Zorthian? Here. Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Hernandez will be about ten minutes late. Okay. But we have a quorum. Yes. Correct. You have a quorum. All right. Um, so we will adjourn the open meeting and go into closed session. Yes, and we'll get uh, the reports of the credentialing committees, and I believe there may be a discussion of one or two uh, items um, constituting a potential exposure to litigation. Okay. Thank you. Um, hello, and welcome back to open session. Um, let's see. We have... Uh, we have some minutes to approve and some policies and procedures. Um, they, it's on a consent agenda, but why don't we do them separately? Do I have a motion to approve the minutes? Second. Is there any discussion? I don't remember that there, I, I saw anything. Okay. Um, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. And opposed? One, so we approve minutes are approved. And how about the policies and procedures? Any questions about those? Do we or am I supposed to get a motion first and then discuss after? So, questions about the policies? Nothing, you read them all, you agree with all of them. <laughs> every one of them, every <laughs> single page. <laughs> 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 approval. It was a great substitute for not having to take sleeping medication. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. It does put Whoa. one to sleep, doesn't it? Okay. So I have a motion to approve. And do we have a second? Second. Okay. All those in favor? Sorry. I'm, um, and no one opposed. The policies are approved. Then we have um, the report on End of Life Option Act briefing. Is that something you're prepared to do? I am. Okay. Thank you. So everyone uh, should have a handout. There's um, also uh, will be up on the screens. And so I had uh, asked for the opportunity to make this presentation to at least starting with this committee as we uh, work through the process of getting uh, this issue to the board. Um, you know, the, the End of Life Option Act was uh, signed by the governor in October of last year, becomes effective in June of this year. Um, there's, um, I guess, the you know appropriate amount of misunderstanding about what the act actually provides for us. So the purpose, or part of the purpose today was to talk about specifically what uh, it calls for and then how that relates to, you know, us as an organization and the steps that we're taking uh, to deal with it. Um, so, you know, very, you know, quickly, just, you know, a couple of uh, three, you know, major things in terms of its impact. Um, first, this is not a, a mandate or a directive from the state. It is basically an authorization from the state. Uh, each provider will have an opportunity to decide whether he or she will, wishes to engage in activities which are going to be permitted by the Act. Uh, likewise, organizations that employ providers or that organizations that provide medical services, you know, have the option of determining whether or not they're going to allow um, activities which are permitted by the Act. Um, and essentially, this is also not um, a, an authorization that relates to specific activity by providers other than providing a prescription for drugs that have the effect of, you know, ending uh, the life of a patient who chooses to take that route. 
so it's not, you know, in the form of a, uh, you know, what has been in the past described as, you know, assisted suicide laws. This is specifically focused on the notion of providing a prescription for drugs which are defined as aid in dying drugs. Um, and a patient can make that request. We'll talk about the specifics of that. Uh, but the law also makes clear that they have the right to withdraw that request after it's been made. So like I say, the law was uh, signed in October 2015. It has a 10-year sunset, uh, so it will run from June 9th of 2016 to January uh, 1st of 2026. <clears throat> uh, there are five other states in the country which have similar laws. This law is patterned uh, after the Oregon Death with Dignity Act, um, and in you know, taking the opportunity to look at this, you know, I will tell you that there is a wide variety of opinion out there regarding the act, you know, both in terms of its process, what it ultimately provides for. Uh, part of this is informed, you know, by what happened in Oregon, um, you know, after they had passed their Death with Dignity Act. Um, and you know, particularly germane to an organization of this type, you know, is the a concern that has been expressed that these types of laws basically uh, are most disadvantageous uh, to populations similar to those that we serve. And the question of, you know, the ability of people to fully understand um, what the laws provide for, to fully access them if they choose to, or uh, the possibility that they may be misled as to um, what is uh, being or what's being made available to them, or that their choice regarding it might be not a, a truly voluntary choice. Um, and, and I'll just you know, tell you briefly, you know, one of the um, more unfortunate uh, anecdotal incidents which occurred up in Oregon um, you know, involved uh, an insurer. And there was a patient uh, who was basically um, um, had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. They had sought a treatment. It was a some an experimental type treatment, something along those lines, but it required the approval of the insurer. Um, and the insurer com uh, insurance company uh, declined uh, to provide for the treatment. Um, but in communicating their denial of the treatment, you know, they pointed out, but you know, under the Death with Dignity Act, we would pay for drugs, you know, should you decide to go that route, you know. So, you know, there uh, things that have happened like that, you know, have have come up as part of the discussion around this when it was being debated as a bill to be passed and so, you know, are likely to continue on as, you know, we sort of move towards the uh, effective date of it. <clears throat> so, um, as far as we know right now, you know, and this is just sort of anecdotal, you know, data, uh, USC, Kaiser, UCSF, Kaiser, Sutter do plan uh, to permit um, the act to be carried out, you know, within its facilities and by its employees. Uh, the only one that I know of for certain is uh, Dignity Health is elected not to. Um, and I, you know, can't tell you, I'm, you know, we'll get more information, you know, after uh, the effective date, you know, because there's no there's no general reporting uh, requirement other than locally by the organization, you know, which chooses, you know, to do so. So, um, the procedures under the Act are quite clear uh, in terms of how it is supposed to operate, generally speaking. There are a number of areas where there are still some gaps in it, and, you know, as we sort of go through here, I can identify, you know, some of those, and I'm sure, you know, our... Um, you know, the, uh, the chiefs and the medical staff, you know, may also have, you know, some things to add, and you 
feel free to join in, you know, should you uh, have any, you know, questions or comments that may have come up uh, amongst your folks. So this provides for an attending physician to determine uh, or in response to a request from a patient for an aid in dying drug. Uh, once the attending um, uh, physician or the request has been made by the individual, and, and there's essentially three requests, two verbal requests and then a written request, uh, it's up to the attending physician to determine that the patient is, in fact, what's called a qualified patient. No. So attend and so with regard to attending physicians, consulting physicians, any of the healthcare providers which are identified in the act, they're specifically defined. And so it's not a you know, a casual relationship with the patient, you know, it is in fact the attending physician. Uh so there's specific definitions, you know, for each of the uh you know, how that term is defined, you know, within the act. And it does raise a question, you know, because you know, again, when we get to the, uh, the issue of choice by, you know, a physician, you know, if someone's being treated, if they're aware of the law, they're being treated by a physician, you know, who, uh, their attending physician, you know, who is elected not to participate, you know, what sort of questions that raises. So that, but it, it is uh, very well defined uh, under the act itself. The uh, requirements for uh, patients, you know, who are uh, qualified to request the aid and dying drug, um, they, uh, you know, basically they have to be adults, they have to be residents of California, uh, they have to have been diagnosed with uh, a terminal illness, and again, the terminal illness is defined, you know, within um, the statute. Uh, it must be voluntary. Uh, there must be two oral requests, uh, first request, period of 15 days, and then the second uh, request, and then the third time around, they have to actually put the request in writing, and there's a specific form that we'll talk about that they're uh, required to execute. Uh, they must have the physical capacity to ingest the drugs. Um, and this is one of the things, you know, which, you know, is perhaps not clearly understood about, you know, how this operates. Uh, the you know basic premise here is that a, a doctor will prescribe these drugs to an individual, but it's up to the individual patient to actually physically ingest the drugs. And so, if the uh, you know patient has motor deficit or you know any other sort of physical you know impairment or obstruction by which they are not able to do this themselves, then they're not a qualified patient. And so an individual who's in a coma, an individual, you know, you know, who might, you know, be, uh, you know, suffering, you know, uh, particular types of paralysis might very well not be a qualifying patient if they're not physically able to uh, ingest the drugs on their own. Likewise, <clears throat> the individual has to have the mental capacity to make, give an informed consent about this is the procedure that they want to follow. And this is one of the more controversial, you know, issues regarding uh, the legislation because um, the determination, you know, by the attending physician as to the individual's mental ability to, to give informed consent is not particularly well defined under the statute. Um, the statute refers to uh, the possibility of the patient being referred to for a mental health assessment, but there's no requirement under the statute that that mental health assessment be you know, conducted. 
And, you know, one of the questions or issues that has come up, you know, in the discussion around, you know, actually uh, implementing the act is, you know, the question is, you know, the extent to which an attending physician, you know, would be in an adequate position or have the capability of, you know, providing um, uh, inadequate assessment of the person's mental, mental ability. Um, Microphone, please. Oh, Thank you. sorry, I forgot what position. So uh, maybe this is a... a, a Odd question, but if we had a patient who was utilizing our our wellness clinic at Eastmont and was terminally ill, and their physician at Eastmont, you know, agreed, but then they made a request there, but then they were admitted here at Highland, um, would there be a new attempt? Like, would would that slow the process for them because they had a different physician that was diagnosing them versus the physician here? Would the physician here Im immediately become the attending? And would that kick in a new two-week process? You know, I don't know that, um, you know, that I can answer that question fully right now. I think it would tend not because I don't know that they would lose their attending physician simply by virtue of their admission, you know, here, you know, to Highland. Um, I, I would suggest that the relationship with your primary care doctor does not terminate when you go to the hospital. It continues. Then you have two physicians that are caring for you and have responsibility for, you know, various aspects of your care. But you will return back to the original one should you want to do that and should you live through the – if you don't live through it, you're probably not going to go home to take those meds anyway. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, I don't think it's a – a barrier if you okay. acquire a new doctor. Mike. It, it's written to seem as if when you go into the ER or if you go into the hospital, then the, the ER physician or the hospitalist would go back to the original, the attending physician who diagnosed the disease or um, or was working with the patient the patient's primary care provider to to advise them that this the potential for um, for death was imminent, or that that the person had made this request and work with them to the because it says that according to the the, the um, law, only the attending physician can actually prescribe it, so they have to be involved in the prescription part, and the consulting physician may be. As you say, as you point out, Joe, at a completely different site, in a different time. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, to be clear, and this actually, you know, is a nice segue to the next part of what I need to talk about. <clears throat> so, you know, the actual process is is that if an individual has been diagnosed um, with a terminal illness, you know, they can make the request to their attending physician. Uh, there is a mandatory period of at least 15 days, and then that request has to be repeated to the attending physician. At that point, you know, the attending physician uh, and may, you know, is, it's at that point at which the attending physician would be in the process of determining whether or not they're a qualified patient, whether or not, you know, they are qualified to receive drugs as provided for under the statute. Uh, the next step by the patient is a written, and um, as I recall here, request for aid in dying drug to end my life in a humane and dignified manner. And uh, the statute has actually uh, you know, prescribes specific language you know, for each of the forms referenced there. And these aren't recommended forms. This is the, you know, the forms must contain this language. 
Um, and so this is the, the request which goes to the attending physician, which then pr prompts the attending physician to complete the attending physician's checklist and compliance forms. And this is the, where the attending physician you know, certifies the age, the residence, the diagnosis, uh, that the individual you know, understands you know, what they're asking for, that they've been advised of you know, their opportunity to withdraw it, you know, all of the issues that are you know, set forth in the statute. And once the attending physician has gone through all of that, then they would make a referral to the person who's called the consulting uh, physician. And you know, one of the issues that comes up here is that the statute provides that the referral is made you know, to an independent physician who is the consulting physician. An independent isn't, you know, uh, <coughs> defined, you know, precisely under the statute. Um, and, you know, so for example, you know, is a uh, physician who is the member, uh, a member of the same medical group an independent physician, you know, for purposes of the statute. You know, uh, if it's a individual, you know, who is a partner or in a business relationship, you know, with the uh, attending physician, do they, are they independent? So, you know, those are a couple of things that, you know, have to sort of be sorted out in terms of, you know, actually implementing this. But the idea is that there should be a second doctor, you know, who would basically go through and, you know, come to the same conclusions that the attending physician did in terms of this being a qualifying patient. And then they complete the consulting physician's compliance form. Um, once that occurs, then it's back to the attending physician. And the attending physician, you know, at that point, you know, would be meeting with the patient again. There are some final, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, inquiries being made in terms of the patient still intends, you know, to do this, the patient still understands, the patient is still qualifying, and then there's this final attestation for an aid and drawing dug to end my life in a humane and dignified manner, which is a form filled out by the patient at that time. And at that point, the drugs can be, you know, prescribed to the patient. That, you know, so there's no requirement uh, for, uh, with respect to the medical condition other than the initial diagnosis. So it's not like this kicks in because the patient has taken a turn for the worse, you know, for, you know, if you will, or because of some medical emergency. At any point that the diagnosis has been made that qualifies under the statute, all of these procedures can be followed. And so it's not necessarily, you know, the case that this is going to happen, you know, just before or at the time that death is imminent or with respect, you know, to what the medical condition might be. Uh, there are some specific requirements in terms of the drug prescription. So, for example, um, a, um, the, the doctor who is, you know, actually, you know, prescribing the drugs, you know, the statute, you know, makes clear, you know, what they can and what they cannot do. And so it's, you know, essentially, if the doctor has, you know, the capability of uh, it, uh, dispensing drugs, then the uh, doctor gives the drugs to the individual. If the doctor does not have that capability, then the doctor transmits or uh, communicates a prescription to the pharmacy. It's not a question of simply giving a prescription to the individual. It has to go directly to the pharmacy, and then the drugs, you know, can be obtained uh, by the patient, you know, from the pharmacy. The statute is not specifically clear in terms of what uh, aid in dying drugs what constitutes an aid in dying drug. Uh, it doesn't specify, you know, any particular drug or combination of drug or um, uh, 
you know, or, or level or mode of, uh, you know, prescription for the drug. Uh, that's left to the determination of the uh, attending physician. Um, but once the attending physician has issued the prescription, then, you know, uh, at that point the person is able to actually obtain the drugs. Uh, but then it's up to them whether or not they use the drugs uh, and how they use the drugs or at what point they use the drugs. Uh, interestingly enough, there is a final form, uh, which is to be completed by the, uh, the f attending physician. And this is, you know, the, the report of uh, after, you know, the drugs have been prescribed. And arguably, this is a report which is made by the physician, you know, which, you know, indicates that the person has died uh, as a result of having taken the uh, drugs and then information that is to be collected. Uh, one of the practical issues, you know, is, you know, in there are many instances where the attending physician may not know whether or not the patient takes the drugs or doesn't takes the drugs or whether or not, you know, death is actually a result, <coughs> excuse me, a result of, you know, having, you know, actually taken the drugs as prescribed. So, you know, that issue, that's one of the questions which has sort of come up in terms of some of these procedures. Um, you actually said that the physician makes a report after prescribing the drug. It's after death, I'm sorry. It's after death. death. So yeah. is there a report after prescribing? In other words, does the state get to know every time somebody yeah. prescribes one of well, these? Well, that would be the submission of the final attestation because that comes at the time that the prescription. But, but many of these are not going to be used, in fact. Oh, well, no. So at the time that they write the prescription, that they, that's reported? To the state. Okay. Yep. And then, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that it's been determined, you know, exactly how it might be tracked, how many prescriptions are actually filled, um, you know, because, you know, I don't know that they would necessarily, it's not entirely clear to me how they would do that uh, in terms of tracking that or, you know, being able to provide data about that. So, having said that, um, if the patient chooses not to use the drug, would there be a requirement of the family to return that drug? That's one of the uh, the unanswered questions about what happens to drugs that aren't used. Yeah, that's um, and, you know, because there could very well be, you know, excess drugs. And so the statute, you know, you know, provides for this should happen. But, you know, the mechanisms to actually ensure that that would happen, it's not entirely clear about. Mike, does, um, is, is there any specific language of how pharmacies handle these uh, requests that come in because they're supposed to look for drug-drug interactions and verification that the proper doses and drugs being given. How do they know that it's being used for end of life? Well, you know, arguably the attending physician, you know, who is Sir aware Cody. of the, you know, the medical condition, you know, and, you know, and, and so it's the question if the attending physician is going to be prescribing drugs that, you know, are they able to make the determination of, you know, what the interactions might be. Um, you know, the, spe the specific, you know, requirements, you know, for the pharmacist are more along the lines of what they're required to respond to or what they should be responding to, you know, and that is, you know, a, so if they got, you know, a prescription from, you know, you know, one of the barbiturates or whatever that might be described in this instance, um, and it's somebody walking in with it, then they would clearly have an obligation to question that, um, you know, because a doctor should not be giving a prescription to the individual to take to the pharmacy to be filled. 
Um, so, yeah, there are some issues for pharmacists in terms of understanding whether or not, you know, or who they're actually giving these or dispensing these drugs to and whether or not it's been properly. Does the law require the, to have indication of use on the um, pharmacy request? Say again? Is there an indication of use? Like, is there an ICD-10 code, some kind of um, definition or... or yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one of the questions that, you know, is um, that I think is still sort of an unanswered, you know, regarding this is, you know, what goes on the death certificate, um, you know, because, you know, is it the, the illness that they died from, you know, is it something else, you know, complications of something else um, as far as it goes. Uh, there have been a number of questions, you know, raised about. Um, you know, competency issues in terms of determining the right dose of drug to be prescribed, um, you know, which, you know, then potentially, you know, raises other issues about um, that have swirled around any time we have a discussion about, you know, providing, you know, drugs that are going to end a life. So, uh, so like I say, there are things which, you know, as you sort of walk through the process of, you know, imagining how this might happen, you know, that are raised and that, you know, we have begun the process of thinking about. So in terms of, you know, for this organization, um, the, uh, you know, I've made a presentation uh, to the medical executive committee of the, uh, the Highland medical staff. And so they will be collaborating with uh, the ethics committee here at Highland. Um, to uh, determine whether or not the uh, medical staff here is going to take a position. I'll be making a presentation at Alameda this Friday uh, and making the same request to them, and then I'll meet with the San Leandro uh, MEC at their next meeting. Um, our idea is that the medical staff will make a recommendation to the board uh, with respect uh, to participating in activities under the Act. Um, we are also collaborating with the ethics committees, uh, the ethics committee at Alameda Hospital, uh, or we've met with the ethics committee here at Highland Hospital. Uh, we'll establish contact with the ethics committee at Alameda Hospital, and that's a resource which is available to each of the MECs as well, too. Uh, and then eventually this will come to the Board of Trustees. It's a policy decision um, for the board to determine whether or not um, the organization will authorize uh, or permit activities under the act. Um, and again, there are a number um, of questions, you know, that sort of, you know, come about that. So, for example, you know, um, I believe, um, you know, UCSF's approach is that they are authorizing activities in the act, but they're prohibiting um, any ingestion of life-ending drugs within their facilities. So it's not the situation, you know, where uh, someone could come in, see their attending physician, um, have the drug, or, you know, have the physician, you know, give them the drugs and they take it right there in the office. It would have, that's activity which has to care. So in terms of, you know, sort of, you know, determining, you know, things like that, that would be part of the policy process that we would have to do in terms of you know, drafting a policy, uh, and we have to draft a policy either way. We have to draft a policy uh, which will implement uh, the act if the activities are authorized, and if the uh, decision were to prohibit the act, then we need to have a policy on that as well, too. And the policy would lay out, you know, generally speaking, um, the procedural requirements. Uh, it would address, you know, to the extent that we're able, you know, other issues that may be of interest based upon medical staff or ethics committee recommendations in terms of 
you know, for example, you know, would we want to include a requirement for a mental health assessment, uh, even though that's not required by the Act? Um, you know, and again, the UCSF, you know, they've made the determination that that's going to be part of their policy. Um, but, um, you know, how the procedural requirements would be satisfied, any restrictions, you know, we might, you know, seek to place in terms of how this actually is carried out. Uh, within the organization. Uh, and then finally, you know, conducting training for medical staff, uh, and I think all employees of the organization. Um, there, you know, is, are certainly issues, you know, for those healthcare providers who would be involved directly in this, but also, you know, just at least some level of basic understanding for all employees of the organization. Because one of the requirements of the Act is that we do communicate this, you know, within, uh, you know, the uh, facilities, whether or not we are a participant, you know, in the Act or not a participant in the Act. And I think on some level we have to anticipate, you know, uh, the opportunity for every employee to perhaps to be, you know, faced with an inquiry about that and so how that might be responded to. So, um, what questions does that raise? The, the law, and what you're basing this on is the law, is what was written yeah. in law. And won't there be regulations that, to implement the law that will come out eventually that will have more specificity? Uh, there, there may be, but they, they certainly not by the effective date, not by right. the June 9th effective date. Well, in particular... I'm just reading the law, and it, there's two things that I want to that I noted in the law. It says that any governmental entity that incurs costs resulting from a qualified individual terminating his or her life um, shall have a claim against the estate for whatever costs are associated with that death. Which I'm not sure how that would work, but that might affect our um, facilities. So, and the other part was that they will um, they will be looking at the pharmacy aspects of it and um, adding new regulations, the, the, um, one of the provisions says that they'll review the prescription, the, the prescriptions, and that they'll add additional regulations for, um, for pharmacies and health care providers. So the public health officer shall annually review a sample of records and shall adopt regulations establishing additional reporting requirements for physicians and pharmacists. So eventually, you know, they'll probably figure it out in Sacramento, but it looks like until then, it's pretty. Well, oh, well yeah, and I do think that, um, you know, experience, you know, once it does come into play, you know, will certain answer some of those questions, uh, some of those issues. Um, you know, and understand that all of the, the documentation, which is, uh, you know, the specific forms, uh, you know, are forwarded, you know, to the Department of Public Health. Uh, and then in addition to those forms, there are, you know, specific requirements, you know, regarding, you know, uh, documentation in the medical charts as well, too. I didn't get into the detail of all that. Right. But, but each one of those items that might be included as part of the checklist or, um, or uh, the um, confirming certificate also has to be charted in the medical records as well, too. And so that's one more source of information. Dr. Duan. Say the diagnosis of terminal illness, do they have specifically mentioned the diagnosis or is it a loosely used term and the physician makes that determination? Uh, you know, ter yeah, well, terminal illness is fairly well defined um, in the statute. 
and uh, let me just see if I can find it right quick here. Uh, no list of diagnosis. No, it's not. There's not a list. Uh, as I recall, it just basically defines, you know, precisely what criteria constitute, and, you know, it's, uh, Mike, unless I'm mistaken, doesn't it also require a prognosis of less than six months? Yes. Uh, so it's not as if you could get a diagnosis that will be terminal in three years, and then you would qualify because you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there is a spy. I just can't put my hands quite on it right yet here. Any other? Oh, trust your Yeah, uh, I, I would like to know uh, how the ethics committee is uh, composed in terms of looking at this. Um, I'll just offer an observation. Um, my father passed away of cancer in December and um, he lingered quite a bit and uh, I would never wish that on anybody and I know the medical community here has seen that for themselves I, I hope we don't make it difficult for a family to make that very tough decision because if I could have helped him leave you know four weeks before it happened I would have gladly done that and he was asking to please let him die um, not everybody's at that place, not everybody goes through that, but for those who do, I'm a little nervous hearing that UCSF is not allowing for the medication to be given on site. Uh, I, I, oh, 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 well, no, and, and so just let me yeah, you know, uh -huh. be clear that the, you know, their policy is that um, ingesting the drugs within their facilities is yeah. not authorized. Um, and, and there's a number there's a number of reasons yeah. for that in terms yeah. of you know being able to deal with it. Yeah, you know, the other thing, and you know, with uh, you know, just to be clear, um, and, and one of the important distinctions that um, uh, you know the patient, all of this has to come from the patient. One of the specifics um, uh, issues that uh, the attending physician has to address is you know a an assurance that you know this is an individual decision. Yeah. Um, you know, because, you know, and again, one of the, you know, concerns is, is, you know, an individual sort of being coerced into right. a decision, you know, regarding it. Likewise, you know, to the extent that, you know, a patient, you know, has lost, uh, you know, any degree of, you know, capacity, you know, or, uh, you know, ability to make a decision, you know, the family members cannot, right. you know, step in. Um, so, and again, it's, you know, the, you know, an attempt to sort of balance, you know, you know, two sort of, you know, competing, you know, principles, you know, as far as it goes, so. Yeah. Well, just um, as we do, as this goes to the Ethics Committee and as it comes back to the board, I, I would be wanting to ensure that, that our palliative care and hospice staff and providers are very involved. I know that they participate on the Ethics Committee, but mm -hmm. involved somehow in all of this decision making whenever it comes to the um whenever one of a patient a, a ahs patient whether it be at a clinic or at any of the facilities and the doctors who are providing care here are, are also in consultation with or somehow getting information through, from palliative and um, hospice care providers and, and 
I really think it's important that um, there, e even if someone isn't taking advantage of this thing, that they have access to really excellent palliative care, which should be able to manage symptoms. And we are, you know, reasonably good at it, but we have to get better here. Um, this isn't the only way for people to pass out of this life comfortably. And to that point, I, I wonder, um, Mike, if you think since different hospitals, like you mentioned UCSF, would it be, and, and I, I'm not suggesting that we do this, but would it be something that where we could, where the, this facility and AHS could, could require that, um, that in order to receive end of life and, and end of life um, medication, that the patient would have to be in, enroll, in hospice? Would that be a requirement that we could adopt? I'm just curious. It doesn't seem to be precluded in the statute. I, you know, I, I don't. So, I don't think so. Uh, that would just be the opinion off the top of my head. You know, in as much as that's not, you know, <coughs> excuse me, specifically addressed within the the statute. I think that that runs the risk of being, you know, viewed as a you know potential obstacle to an individual's right to exercise. You know, what the uh, act provides for, uh, as distinct from the medical mental health assessment, which is addressed in the statute and, you know, which the statute, you know, does, you know, uh, you know, provide some degree of discretion, you know, for the organization to include as part of, you know, the procedural requirement. And I think that that's one of the balancing acts that we, you know, that is required. You know, there, you know, on the one hand, uh, the access provided, you know, by this is intended by the legislature to be access. Um, and I think that one of the questions that's raised is that you know, to the, the extent to which, you know, any additional requirements, you know, serve to interfere with that access or make it uh, more difficult. And again, it's, I think it's a question which you know, arises in the context of um, different populations as well, too, you know, because, you know, everybody has varying degrees of access, you know, to healthcare resources. And, you know, if, you know, there's one option and that option is, you know, many obstacles, whereas other people have options that don't have those, then, you know, does that create the, the right sort of equity or whatever? But that's a little bit more than legal, so I'll stop there. Any other questions? Well, I just wanted to make a comment uh, um, that the mental health has uh, been not included in this, as you said. Am I right? That means there's no requirement to have a mental health evaluation before prescribing the drug. There is not, unless the attending physician, you know, has Once determined that that, that Most of these done. terminally ill patients, they are on narcotics. Yeah. Uh, and those are the patients who are giving you a consent. And that could definitely be a question raised. Uh, so, uh, one of the considerations for the attending physicians in terms of making the assessments that they're required to make under the statute. Do you have any idea in your vast reading about this whether how often these in in other states where we that have these laws? How, what percentage of the time people actually use the drugs that they are prescribed? You know, I've seen a little bit of the data off, uh, and I just don't off the top of my head. The only thing that I know that I do recall from the data off the top of the head, there's only been one reported instance under the Oregon statute of a patient actually dying within a medical uh, facility. Within a medical facility? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, it's mostly at home. So yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. it's a home or outpatient thing. And am I also correct if the uh, facility or the organization participate in this, the individual physicians can uh, opt out to not to prescribe the medicine. That is correct. It's you know strictly within the uh, the purview of the physician, and in the statute you know does a couple of things. One, it actually uh, counteracts you know the requirements of Health and Safety Code Section four four two point three, and that's the section you know which basically you know mandates that the physician you know uh, provide you know certain types of counseling and advice to a patient you know whether or not you know despite their you know personal preferences um, this statute basically does if a physician elects to opt out they do not have any obligation to even counsel a patient about the availability of the end of life you know uh, act um, so you know it makes provision for that and then it also provides complete immunity to a physician who takes actions under the act to the extent that they comply with the procedures that are set forth under the act okay thank you Discussion under issue track. Sorry, that you are aware of. Let me see if I can. There is a an item which is scheduled to be discussed next month. Just the way I read that, which would be the dialysis transition discussion. Okay. Anything else? Do we have a report from legal counsel? Yes, in closed session, uh, the committee approved the uh, credentialing report from each of the three facilities. No other action was taken. Okay. Do we have any requests for public comment? None received. All right. Oh, if I could, Madam Chair. So I um, would ask for direction from the committee or you know, permission from the committee to go ahead and um, prepare or communicate to the other members of the board the information contained in the handout that I provided to the four of you and also sort of a summary briefing sheet so that they can start to think about this information in advance of our next discussions, if that's okay. Of course. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We're adjourned.